Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I know you'll be alright Even when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart you can finally start to live your truthiest life. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. It's your host, Lisa Haim, and we have another amazing guest this week, my friend Madeline, a.k.a. Maddie, the food blogger behind madaboutfood.co. Her Instagram is madaboutfood, and Maddie uses her platforms to help people make healthy and approachable recipes, but there is also a lot more to what Maddie does. She talks about anything that she's passionate about. She's not afraid to be authentic, even if it means losing followers. She gets vocal about things that she is passionate about, which includes quitting dieting herself. What you may not know is that Maddie actually built a cult following after doing Whole30 herself two Januaries in a row. So for two Januaries in a row, she created these recipes that other Whole30 followers obviously wanted to do. And as a result, they were loyal to her. But when she realized that participating in Whole30 was perpetuating diet culture, something she wanted to move away from herself, she came out with the statement letting people know why she will no longer be doing that and why she's quitting dieting herself. That came with loss of followers, loss of income, and was essentially a very brave thing to do that very few, I think, would do. She shares it all from how she became a successful food blogger, which, by the way, is not reliant on her social media. She talks about her fertility struggles, being in a gay relationship, and what the sperm donor process was like for her and her partner. She is just a really fun friend, and I love kind of bringing friends on this show because we can have really candid conversations. And one of my favorite parts of this conversation is we're talking about straight people loving gay porn and what that may or may not mean for for your sexuality. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you back here next week. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. I'm so excited to talk to you, Maddie, because we 
talk all day on texts. And now we're bringing this to the in-person, in-person Zoom, the new in-person. And we're going to get a deep dive into who you are beyond all the amazing food blogging that you do. And right before this, you said something that caught my attention that I never knew about you. You've got all these fun facts, which is you said, let me grab my hearing aids before we chat. You are how old? I just turned 29. Happy birthday. And my favorite thing about you is I said, wow, I didn't know you had hearing aids. And you're like, yeah, that's my new 2022 feature. (laughs) Really putting a positive spin on, I think, what most people would might be self-conscious about. So what's that about? So I call it a feature because when I get ready in the morning, I'm like a bionic woman. I've got like my pills, my contacts, my hearing aids. My family has hearing loss that runs in the family. um, And it seems to be switching sexes each generation, but I don't know if that's like a solid fact, but my grandmother got hearing aids in her mid twenties. My father got hearing aids in his mid twenties. I grew up knowing my dad had hearing aids. And like, when he had them out, we would just like joke around in the family and like talk about him, couldn't understand us. Right. So for me, there was way less of a stigma. It was just kind of like, during the pandemic, I realized I wasn't really hearing people, but also put it off. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to go to another doctor's office in the middle of a pandemic. And then this past fall, my friend visited who I hadn't seen for two years. And I was like, wow, I fully can't understand you anymore. And I lived with her in Atlanta. So I knew like she was my roommate. I could understand her perfectly fine. And that was scary. So I went for hearing test. My audiologist was like, your curve is very similar. Like your loss curve of hearing loss is very similar to your dad's able to hook you up, no problem. And it was definitely like a difficulty getting used to them. But now that I have them, I love them. They completely changed my life. Like I've stopped listening to music for years because I couldn't fully understand. Um, My loss is like women's voices and children's voices. So a lot like more high pitched sounds. So music like sounds completely different to me without my hearing aids in. And like, if there's a tone that's just like in my loss range, I just don't hear it. So like the turn signal on the car, I just don't hear it tick. So anyway, I talked about them on my Instagram because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm embarrassed to go for the hearing test. So I try to tell people like, don't be embarrassed. There's, I mean, this is not a video podcast, but they're so small. You can't see them at all. And it's changed my life. I love your approach on it. And I love the way you're also bringing some awareness to this because I didn't know that people in their 20s could begin to lose it or that there's something genetic about it. And I think, like you said, like, you know, you could really lose out on life if you allow the embarrassment or any stigma to it because you're afraid of what people will think, say, judge, you know, but you're like, these changed my life. The scariest part about hearing loss is that it could lead to cognitive decline. And I just have, I had a relative who recently died of dementia and the hearing loss community, basically the doctors are trying to remind people that like, when you can't hear, you isolate yourself from social situations and social isolation leads to early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, all these cognitive disorders. And so it really is like, if it's happening to you in your twenties or thirties or forties, like there's no reason why you can't treat it except for the fact that it's wildly expensive and usually not covered by insurance, but that's a whole other topic. But that was another thing that really like when I went and had the hearing test done and the doctor told me that I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe how real that was because I didn't want to go to parties. Like I didn't want to go to like, and luckily it was COVID. So there weren't big parties, but like even gatherings of my family, I would lose out on pieces of the conversation. And you just feel dumb saying like, excuse me, can you repeat yourself? What did you say? (laughs) Well, you know, that was just a little fun fact about you. I didn't know. And I think really just 
kind of paints the picture as to who you are as a person. You're, you're young, but you've, you're, you've been through a lot as a young person with autoimmune illnesses. And right now you're going through a fertility journey. And there's so much about, you know, you that you put online on your Instagram, despite being a food blogger. So before we dive into all that fun stuff, let's talk a little bit about your food blogging journey because you are quite successful. You've got quite the reach and this is your full-time job. How did you end up as a food blogger? I have grown up in a family that really appreciates food and loves food and cooking. And um, when I was in college, uh, my family was remodeling our kitchen. I also grew up in a family that their job is construction. So I grew up in dust at all times. But one summer we were remodeling the kitchen and I was living at the time with just my dad and my brother because my mom was away with my sisters and my dad and my brother were like, well, we'll just live on takeout. And I was like, I am a 19 year old girl. I'm not just going to live on takeout. Like <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So I taught myself to cook that summer with like a grill, a hot plate and a cutting board. And then I kind of brought it back to college and I was cooking way more in my like tiny dorm kitchen than I was going to the dining hall. Cause I just appreciated my own food more and kind of found it was easy for me to like create recipes and pull ingredients together. It was just something that was coming naturally. And so at that time I was a junior in college. I started just an Instagram and continued to post on that for like a few years. And then my first job out of college, I had little to no time to cook again because I was a traveling consultant. And then finally my dad looked at me one day and he was like, you are so miserable. You love to cook and this job is giving you no time for it. So I switched jobs so that I could work a normal like nine to five and have time to run my blog at night. And then through a couple of mishaps and cartwheels, I made it to full-time food blogging, which has been amazing. And I have so many like offshoots of that, of like how I got to where I am today. But the like Cliff Notes version of it is that like what I cook today is simple ingredients you could get at any store. I don't cook with anything special. And I want it to be like really straightforward, good cooking. And I really want my recipes to be like easily replicable for busy people we don't have a lot of time to like simmer something all day or also don't have maybe a lot of money to buy a fancier ingredient. So that's kind of where my blog has gone. And now full-time, yeah, I share on social media and my blog is my home for all my recipes. Right. Your website is beautifully done and it is a great place to really get all those recipes. So for those of you that are like, okay, this is me, you're going to want to head to her website, madaboutfood.co.com, right? I don't own it. Been trying to buy it for years. <laughs> so just .co, you'll find me. Or if you just Google Mad About Food, I come up, I think, first. I know a lot of food bloggers, but I also know it's a very congested space. Was there a moment where your career kind of teetered and took off and you kind of grew a really strong following? This is the weird twist and turns, right? But uh, I did two years in a row, I did a January Whole30. And that's where my a career like as a food blogger completely took off. The weird thing now is that I am like firmly in the anti-diet space and like anti-Whole30. So that's where like I've taken a full turn, but that was really where I gained a following, but also was where I was able to like learn how to actually create recipes online. There's a whole part of that that's like SEO research and writing the recipe a certain way for Google and, and having a really fast running site and things like that. So that's where my career really took off. And then after like 
two to three years of riding that high of like the whole 30 community, I had like a personal complete shift of, I had been chronically dieting for 12 years, which a lot of my like food blogging journey followed those diet changes. So it was like flavor of the week, like keto, whatever I wanted that week. And my recipes followed that. And then there was a huge, huge downturn in my like career and success when I told everyone, like, I'm not doing that anymore. And since then it's kind of been like separating in a way, social media and the virality of the internet with my blog. And so you could write a blog today with no social media audience and be wildly successful. And that's the thing that like, I don't think a lot of people grasp. If I look at my monthly traffic of my visitors to my website, I think it's like 0.5% come from Instagram of my entire traffic. And that's with over a hundred thousand Instagram followers. So I love my Instagram audience. They're my people, but they are not necessarily my blog visitors. Wow. Yeah. So that's where I think like, yes, my, my social career has taken off because of certain things, but my website is really just like it's keyword research, keyword research, keyword research. Like you can just play to the Google gods, which is all as exhausting as algorithms, but you really don't have to like have hundreds of thousands of followers to have a successful food blog and even a congested space. You could start one today and like be successful in a year. I think that's super inspiring. And I think it's a part of food blogging, uh, maybe any blogging, people who are really bloggers on their website, not just influencers on Instagram, to really know that there's so much that goes into a blog and the person creating the blog. You were drawn to this because you love food and creating simple recipes. And yet that's not what you're doing all day, every day. You're editing your photos. You're making sure that the keywords match up with whatever Google is looking for that day so that people can find you. I always found that to personally, like why I never went hard on the blog space was because I'm not, I'm not an SEO girl. It's overwhelming to me. You got to, you know, put the word in a million times to get it to be found. But anyway, what I, I loved about what you said, which I, you know, I wanted to have you on the show is that you had to pivot your most successful content. You had to move away from that completely in order to stay true to you. And that meant sacrificing the page views and the following on Instagram. We've definitely had people on here that I've seen do similar things. And I think that's like the quote unquote bravest thing to do. And, and I say brave because so few people do it. You know, it's so much easier to stick to what you know the people want. But when that is clearly from your, your voice of passion, so disingenuous to what you believe in, you made a hard pivot and, and that came at a quote unquote cost. Like you're, I'm sure you're, you had a financial loss from that. Yeah. I think authenticity, right. is like, just something that is a buzzword, right? Like I only want to follow authentic creators, right? It's like, you're never going to actually know if someone's authentic because people can play authentic authenticity on the internet so well. And I think you and I know that from like meeting actual people behind the scenes, very weird world we live in where like you could be DM friends with someone for years and then meet them at an event and be like, oh, wow. So I think like people use that buzzword authenticity, but I am more just like very blunt and like have always been that way. And so I cannot keep a secret. I cannot not share. I can't keep my opinions to myself as much as I try. I literally like try my, I study stoicism because I would like to be more stoic. Right. And that kind of comes through on the internet. And so I could have, yes, 
pretended that I'm still eating all these whole 30 recipes or I'm living a paleo lifestyle or whatever. It just didn't make sense to me to do that. And at the time it was actually like this perfect storm of like, I'd lost a lot of my paid partnerships and a lot of my traffic from COVID anyway. And I was going through a really hard personal time when I went like fully from like restricted eating, dieting to my like full anti-diet eat whatever I want life. And it was easy almost in a way because I had already lost some of those partnerships. I was had to revert back to a full-time job in an office. It was an easy time for me to say like, I'm going to say whatever, like wash my hands of this. If I never make another dollar from mad about food, that's fine. But let's like do it with some real integrity because I can't be anyone that I'm not. And I also think like I have a super supportive family and partner. And I think that's a huge part of it. Like if I was very alone in that feeling of like, oh, I have to pay the bills and I have to do something, it might be easier for me to just like, you know, stick with it and do things for money or for whatever. And it really allowed me to like completely build resiliency in me, right? Where like I separated myself from like, what I thought my business should be. And really it's more like, who am I and what like drives me and makes and wakes me up every morning. And it continuously reminds me, like if I have passion and creativity behind what I do, then I can always pivot and make a change. And the work will always come with that. And it's just continued to be there over the years. I think what you said too, about having a supportive partner and family, you know, how aside from the financial support that they were able to lend towards you during that time is also the emotional and self-worth that you get from those relationships. I have found you and I've been in this industry for a long time and we've met a lot of people, like we said, who don't necessarily check out in real life as they do online. And I think that's because so much of their self-worth comes from the internet alone. Um, and if you're constantly coming to that place for validation, like, or 100, if that's 100% where you're getting your validation from, it's really hard to make pivots because those are the people that are coming to you for, for a certain reason, right? But if you have that support system at home that knows you're not just Maddie who makes food, you're also Maddie that does A, B, C, D, and E, they love you for your whole picture. And you're like, I no longer want to be Maddie that's doing Whole30. They're like, okay, cool, right? Like you're right. still loved, you're still made to feel safe, you're, you st- you're still whole. Whereas a lot of people, you know, if they're not putting out, let's just say those Whole30 recipes, there goes their entire community and their support. And that's, yeah. I, I speak compassionately to those people. And that doesn't mean that they can't pivot, you know, it always should feel authentic because that's the only way that it will be sustainable. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Like if you're putting out disingenuine content, why is that so different than working a job at an office that you hate? You know, everybody's like, I want to have the dream job and work online from home. But why is that any different if you hate what you're doing, producing that content? Right. And I I don't want this to say that like anyone who's sharing paleo recipes is fake, right? Because there's so many people who are still benefiting from that and whatever. But I have like a core memory of sitting in my parents' driveway and I got a DM from a woman that said, I'm so disappointed in you. And it was all the reasons why my shift in content and I, from that moment, and I still obviously like, I get very flustered by the hate and the, the hate comments and the rude messages. But from that moment on, like disappointment or like, I'm proud of you. The only people who are allowed to tell me they're proud of me are like my immediate family and my wife. Like no one else, I mean, they're allowed to tell me you're proud of me, right? You are any, like you're allowed to say it, but I don't have to internalize like someone being proud or disappointed in me if I don't actually value their opinion of me. And it's so hard to separate on the internet because you're like, even people that I've followed for, let's say like I've had Instagram, gosh, 10 years now, even the people I followed for 10 years, I'm like, they owe me something, but they don't, they don't owe me anything. And I don't know owe them anything. And that's kind of like the relationship you have to, to get to as the creator, especially But that was like a clear moment in my mind where I'm sitting in my driveway. I'm like, why am I crying over this random lady telling me she's disappointed in me for doing something that feels good to me, actually? Not I'm not doing something that I feel yucky about. And you have a really bold personality. And for some reason, people see that as an invitation to not just unfollow you and move on with their lives if they don't like it. But it seems like you do get a lot of hate. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily hate, but I, or it's it's a lot of honesty. Like people want to be honest back to me. And I think it's because of that honesty I put put out, right? Like last week I asked for bra recommendations and a lot of women said skim. And they said, I hate to say skims, but skims. And I wrote, you know, a blurb, like I'm going to order from these four brands because they were the most highly requested. And a lot of what I do on crowdsourcing it with my audience is like, I'm ordering for the every man. I'm not ordering for the person who has like a million dollars to spend. And I'm not ordering, you know, whatever. Right. So I ordered from the brand that had the most. And this woman sent me this scathing message about like, how could you order from that trash person, Kim Kardashian, blah, blah, blah. And I had a really nice conversation with her where I was like, I think this is misplaced anger at me. It's anger towards him. <laughs> but I think people actually see that, like, I share my opinion so freely that they're like, it encourages it. And sometimes, like, that conversation I had with that woman actually at the end of it was like, okay, we're great. We're good. She's still like a follower of mine. I'm happy if she ever DMs me again. And then sometimes it's like an immediate block. 
and we all move on. I think also I live a life that is, I mean, I'm gay. So I think that some people like want to comment on that from somewhere like deep down. Right. And like, I've done such a good job of kind of cultivating my audience. I I'm not on this path of getting a million followers. I'd actually like be happy to stay where I am the rest of my life. Like TikTok scares me for that reason. Like I don't want my videos to go viral. I'll never, please allow me to just step in and validate this. Like when I first got on TikTok, I followed you because I, I, you know, we're friends and I love to support you and see the amazing recipes. And the last video she had had over a million views. And then it had been like three months since she posted again. And I was like, um, you're a TikTok star. And you're like, yeah, no, it's freaked me out. I'm never posting again. Obviously you've posted again since then, but. Yeah, quit at the height of my stardom. People commented things like these types of recipes are why divorce exists. And I had just gotten married and I was like, what the heck? And it was so crazy because there's so much going on behind the scenes in your life, right? I had made that recipe for a friend who just had a baby and the friend was like, thank you so much for like feeding me and my family, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, the crazy thing about the world is like, I'm letting these comments affect me. I think hate affects me easily because I just let it. But also I get more hate because I live a life that is not straightforward. I don't know if it's like internalized homophobia or like, or anything internalized. I just think it's like, well, a lot of what I share, right, is like at this point in my life is our fertility journey and trying to start a family. And I think a lot of people have questions and the questions 99 times out of 100 are genuinely coming from a place of like people don't understand it, right? But that always there's always like hundredth question that comes with a little bit of judgment of like, why aren't you adopting? Which you don't, you never ask a heterosexual couple that's struggling with fertility. Why are you? Well, I shouldn't say never, but it's very rare that you ask a heterosexual couple that's struggling to get pregnant. Why aren't you adopting? But what I've learned from most of my gay friends is it's a really commonly asked question of gay people. And it's like, just because we don't genetically together as a couple have the means to make a child doesn't mean that our want to have our own genetic children or to be a pregnant woman isn't as strong as a heterosexual couples want, right? And of course, for two men, there isn't that option for them to carry children, but for them to want their own genetic children is the same want as you and your husband or anyone and their husband. So I think like it's questions like those where you can just tell a sense, a tone, like, you know, that adoption one was recent, but it's just, I think it's, it's different from me. It's different from my family. And I actually feel it from people in my own life that almost it's like, I wouldn't want this for my own children or whatever it is. It's just like a sense I get from people, especially people who have religious backgrounds where it's like, okay, that's fine. And on the internet, it's easy to just send me a message and move on with your day, right? Like, I think a lot of these comments wouldn't be said face to face if they knew me in person. Well, you know, I think where I sit and I think where a lot of our audience sit is, you know, being gay is not very noteworthy, you know? I mean, I grew up in New York, New York City, you know, the big urban cities, you have a lot of access to that. You see it a lot. You know, it's, it's, not controversial, but take your blog to the internet. And now you're really talking about different parts of America where you said like, you're also hitting a lot of generations, but different parts of America where people have a lot of different religious views or the really rural areas that don't have access to the cities. Like there is a distinct difference between rural cities and cities because 
in the rural cities, oftentimes this is obviously a big over generalization, everybody, but like things generally stay the same and people do the same things. You go to a city, you're getting a conglomerate of all different types of people, different ways of living. I mean, I've seen it so drastically now just being back in Long Island where I'm from and having those 10 years in the city, just the mindset is really a lot less accepting, even if we are, you know, okay with people, you know, do living their lives and, and their sexuality. There's, I understand what you're saying, that there is a level of, I'm fine with you doing it, but I wouldn't want my child to do that. Or what's going to happen when they go to school? And, you know, what's it going to be like to have two moms? Like these things are still happening in 2022. Yeah. Like Amy and I live in, my wife is Amy for all the listeners. Um, Amy and I live in suburbs of Philadelphia when we're in our small town or when we're in Philly, I'm never like concerned about being gay, but even like 20 minutes outside the city, we go to this flea market because my life loves found furniture. It's not a love of mine, but that's marriage. And when we walk around this flea market, I don't, she tries to hold my hand and I don't hold it. Right. And so like, I think that's a thing that people don't really grasp about like, it's 2022 gay marriage is legal. Like if you're a gay person, you're not necessarily like living this carefree life unless you are in a really supportive community. Like even when I lived in Atlanta, I was heckled on the street more than once holding my girlfriend's hand. Like it still exists. And I think that's the piece I get on the internet, right? Like it's someone who lives in a different world than I do. And to them, they haven't gotten to know me as a person. It's always someone who's it's their first time DMing me, right? Like they don't know Amy and I and my personalities. And so they're just putting their judgment out there and for whatever reason, it makes them feel better about themselves, right? <laughs> so two questions. One, when you say you don't hold her hand, is that out of just like a fear of safety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fear of safety. Okay. The crowd is a little bit more like rural at the flea market. And so I've never had a bad encounter where like, okay, we stopped holding hands because of this moment. But I just get a sense now that I've lived mm-hmm. openly gay for as many years as I have, I get a sense of the people around and like the staring and my wife presents more masculine and, but it's very obvious that she's a woman, right? So like us holding hands would just most obviously be like, oh, those are two women holding hands, right? And it's just a sense. Yeah, that sense is spot on. How do you feel about you being kind of this point of access for people that don't have anyone gay in their life or their community? You know, they follow you online because of your recipes and then they're like, wait, she's a person and she's gay. And this relationship looks different than what I thought a gay relationship should look like. I know that this conversation might feel kind of archaic for me, but at the same time, the reality is, is that people are having a hard time adjusting to it and and they see you as this entry point and you're, you're showing them, like you said, they don't know your personality, but then they get to see it and maybe their views do change. Is there a part of you that sees like your role on the internet as opening eyes and changing beliefs and opinions about uh, sexuality? Yeah. I mean, I never like, I never thought when I first shared that I was gay, I had been privately gay for over a year before I shared it on the meaning openly to my family and friends before I shared it publicly on the internet. And I never hit publish on that post being like, this is going to influence people. And like, it never is lost on me. The messages I get from people that are like, thank you for sharing this. It helps me relate to my sister. Thank you for sharing this. It actually encouraged me to come out to my parents. Like I still get messages like that from time to time. And that's from young people who like 
live in the same world we all live, right? And I didn't realize that like visibility is a huge part until like I had to look back at my life and I came out super late in life, not until I was 22. And I think a big part of that was I had no visibility to gay women. I only had visibility to gay men in my life. I had a couple of family friends who were gay men, but no gay women in my life. I went to Catholic schools and then I went to a Southern university. And I think once I was like, wait a second, like these people are having an impact from my post because I am a very visible figure doing something. And I didn't have that when I was younger, like will and grace existed, but there was no like woman, <laughs> will and grace. like there was no grace and grace. Right. So, so true. So it's never lost on me. And it's part of the reason why I share so openly still about like me and Amy's relationship, our marriage, um, our fertility journey. And while, you know, we've gotten pushback on the internet and within our own family for being so open about it, I'll never stop because there are so many women who are being positively affected by us sharing our story publicly. Yeah, it's, it's something that I, again, I feel like I kind of took for granted as a, first of all, as a non-gay person and as just somebody who thinks like, yeah, it's 2020, that same thing. Like we're all, we're all there now, but the reality is, is that it's not. And I think also on the fam familial front, it's probably very hard for people to come out mainly because of their families. That's a, it's a huge generational difference as well, which I feel like that gap will close and close as time goes on, maybe not. But I feel like coming out to your family can be probably the scariest thing, going back to that initial sense of where we get our feelings of belonging and safety. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky. My family is amazing. One of my dad's best friends growing up was a gay man who actually ended up passing away from AIDS. So like from his perspective, like keeping these things a secret is the worst thing you can do, right? Because like it could lead to horrible things, which, you know, even if, you know, the AIDS epidemic is not an epidemic anymore, secrets about sexuality is still a huge, like, risk of suicide and other and drug abuse and all other things. So for, for my family, there was never a question that I would be accepted from my immediate family. But I know that's not the case for everyone. And I think that's like part of the reason why I'm so open to sharing, because like someone's aunt who has like a gay niece and doesn't know it yet might fall in love with me and Amy on the Internet and realize, like, be more accepting right years down the road or whenever it comes to light. And I think a lot of my older family members like would have never said something negative to my face because we're just not that kind of family. But I feel like there's a sense of like the fact that Amy and I like got married and we want to have kids and we bought homes and things like that of like, oh, it's just normal. Like we're just a couple and we're doing life the way everyone else does. And that's super normal if you're in your 20s and 30s right now. But if you're currently in your 50s or 60s or 70s, you probably have never seen like a gay couple, you know, go through their entire life together without some kind of like secretiveness around it. And it's certainly not someone in their 60s or 70s who was able to openly, you know, want a family and children. So that's just like my example. I think these conversations are so important to have. This is a little bit of a funny conversation to have on The Truthiest Life, given that it's not the topic we normally talk about here. But you and I were, were chatting yesterday, and I shared with you that I was with my girlfriend the other day, and a bunch of them were, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of them were like, I love lesbian porn. And these are women that are really comfortable in their heterosexuality. 
Many of them are married with kids and they're very attracted to their partners, but they're like, I just like lesbian porn. And I never heard other women speak so confidently about their, first of all, their porn use or interest. It was very refreshing to be around like this conversation. And the fact that they could say, I like lesbian porn and I'm not gay. That was super interesting to me. And I thought it really just expanded out the conversation where I feel like a lot of people might be afraid of what it means if they are enjoying lesbian porn, right? <laughs> like, I think that people might shy away from that. Yeah. And I said back to you, I think more of my friends are watching lesbian porn than I am, like my straight <laughs> friends, right? It's like we've <laughs> all now had this like it's it's out in the open. All of the listeners can talk about their with their friends that like. Yeah, sexuality is so much more than like what porn you enjoy, right? And right. I think like the more we're all just like more comfortable in general with like not just sexuality, but like I think it also relates back to a lot of the stuff you do about like being comfortable in your body. My sister's in school for marriage and family therapy right now. And we were discussing how like chastity and religious chastity and body image and eating disorders actually go hand in hand. And it's like a lot of women are trained not to trust their bodies on so many different levels. Right. And it's funny because it's like what we enjoy sexually or what we enjoy, you know, what we are attracted to then in like a loving and marriage way, right? Doesn't always line up or whatever. And I think people just have a lot of fear if they've never actually like confronted it themselves or if they do come across it, they're like, wait a second, why did that turn me on? I have a husband, right? It's scary, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it felt scary until all, like all of my friends were just so confidently saying it. And I was like, this is the importance of having these conversations because even so, like, I think that brings out that internalized fear of being gay, right? Like, right. I know I have a lot of women listeners, but I want to encourage you to, you know, do whatever you want, but recognize that like what might turn you on might not necessarily be your sexuality. And yeah. that was like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, there must be so many people doing this hidden and afraid to say it out loud. And then, you know, my girlfriends are really cool and they're just like, yeah, no, it's lesbian porn for me. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> woman yeah, on right. male, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's very interesting. And I think like for all of us and for, for not just your listeners, but what I've explained is like, when I had to explain sexuality to an older person who was maybe not understanding what I'm saying, like attraction is on a spectrum. And like, if you're at the far left, like homosexuality is like your number one. And if you're at the far right, heterosexuality is your number one. And every one of us is like falling somewhere on it. And it's actually like way more rare that you're at the other end of like fully homosexual or fully heterosexual, like to the point where like, I'll be out with my friends and I'll say a male like celebrity or whatever is hot. And they'll be like, Madeline, I'm like, can still like acknowledge a sexy man and then not want to have sex with him. <laughs> right? I know because you're a lesbian, you're not allowed to do that. But like, it's, if I said Zendaya looks hot, which like she it's always much looks more hot. common for women to, yeah, right. It's much more common for women to say it about other women, especially men don't say it about other men. Right. Yes, they should. Cause they're thinking it a lot of times. Yeah. And a lot of the times for like me, even with women, a lot of times if I'm saying someone's like attractive or beautiful, it's more like I would like to look like that or like beauty ideals more than it is like I'm sexually attracted to that. Amazing point. Trip. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Pivoting back to what you've been going through lately, which is your fertility journey. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I'll share about it like kind of from the beginning, because I don't think that a lot of people, even if they are like, I'm chill, I got gay friends, whatever. I don't know that a lot of people like come across this or they talk to their friends about it. But Amy and I both knew we wanted to be parents um, like right away, so much so that we didn't do the like COVID wedding postpone. We just did like a 15 person wedding, mostly because we wanted to be parents right away. And so right after our wedding, we contacted a fertility doctor. We went through the whole process of like genetic testing, something that is crazy to me, but you have to be genetically tested your, your own DNA. If you're going to be the carrier, the FDA regulates pregnancy that is done in a fertility clinic, but they don't regulate it for just anyone walking down the street. So it's kind of like a little like nitpick of mine, but you have to be genetically tested. We did that. We picked out our sperm donor and that's something that we decided we wanted to be like anonymous from our sperm bank. Um, but for some other queer couples, like male or female, you know, they would choose to maybe have like a friend be an egg donor or a friend be a sperm donor. For us, we have a couple of friends who like, obviously we think would be great parents, but they have kids of their own. And there's the idea of like their kids being our kids, half siblings didn't feel right. So we never had anyone where we were like, definitely them. I think for most people, when they find someone like that, it's like a friend who never wants to be a parent themselves, but maybe would be like a cool uncle or a cool aunt. And then they have that like genetic tie to the kid, which is really cool. And so for us, we did that. And the sperm donation process is crazy picking out the donor. Wait, sorry, you did, you did, you did which option? Sorry, anonymous sperm donor online. And it's like online dating. They all have profiles. And instead of a picture of like an adult, it's a baby. Um, and <laughs> so it's like, this is what your baby's going to look like. And going into it, I always had this mindset of like, when I met Amy and fell in love with her, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, and our kids will look like this, right? Because I don't think anyone thinks that way when you're like on your second, third, fourth date. 
maybe some people, but you know, you fall in love with their personality and other things about them. And I never wanted this to be like, okay, I'm going to like pick what my child looks like just because I can. And we learned so quickly that a lot of it was genetic and family history of like just illness or whatever. You get the whole entire family history straight up to great grandparents, including aunts and uncles. So we would like fall in love with the guy and then he would have like, you know, a genetic marker for hearing loss, which I already have. So we, you know, get rid of him. And we were left with so few that like, we kind of almost were like touch and point, you know, and picked someone who we both felt comfortable with. We ended up getting a lot more data about him after we had already purchased. And he has like a really good SAT score. So like things like that (laughs) ended up being great. And then we tried immediately, well, immediately in the fertility world is crazy because it's all based on the woman's cycle. So for me, I have PCOS, I have an irregular cycle. So that was like a whole journey to get to this point. But we started with IUI, which is interuterine insemination, which is like everyone jokes like the turkey baster. So I would take medication at home to enlarge one of my, you know, follicles in my ovaries. Then when you ovulate, that follicle is supposed to drop. And if you're at home trying to get pregnant, Sorry. No, just curious. The purpose of the medication, if you're following your cycle, is it to increase the odds of getting pregnant because this is a expensive thing and you have limited sperm usage? Yeah. So the medication that you're on is like a very low dose of basically like the hormone that naturally allows you to grow an egg every cycle and drop it to ovulate. So there are women who are able to go through like a natural monitored cycle a lot of women in the fertility community don't like the word natural. So I'm actually trying to use it less because it implies that needing fertility treatments, no matter who you are, is unnatural. So anyway, if you have a standard cycle, you could go in and get monitored and they would be like, okay, like we could do the procedure on Thursday, Friday, whatever. But for me, because I have PCOS, the chances of me like they call it recruiting, like recruiting a follicle and dropping it in like a timely manner was not as likely. So you take this medication and then you take an injection, like a trigger shot to make sure that that follicle is dropping. And then you do the insemination on the same day as like, if you were trying at home, you would have try to have sex, like your peak window. Right. And so the idea with that is like, it's as close to standard pregnancy as you can get. I did six rounds of that with like, Wait, sorry, hold up. Six rounds means six months worth or. Yeah. It took us a year, but was supposed to be like six months worth. And just like a little fun fact, each vial of sperm is over a thousand dollars. So like when you're going for all these tries, they use a full vial. So like every try is not only just like a heartbreak, but like a huge financial loss. Right. Um, And some couples really can only afford one vial at a time. We were lucky enough to like bulk buy, (laughs) but it's crazy. Like anyway, we really were hopeful based on my age and my health that that would work. Um, And I went into it with just like head in the clouds, like first round's going to work. Like I thought we'd be parents last April, not parents, but pregnant and didn't work. So then we made it through all six. And the way our insurance works is like, once you go through six, you start IVF. So then in January, I was able to start IVF medications, which similar to the IUI, you take a higher, higher dose of that medication to recruit and grow follicles. And instead of like dropping them into your fallopian tubes and just losing them, they extract them from the ovaries. And for like a lot of women who are like, I'm freezing my eggs, that's kind of like the whole process. So they grab them, they freeze them and save them for later. But if you're married when you're doing it, or you know that you want to be a single parent by choice, or you're in a queer couple, they make the embryos immediately. (laughs) 
it's kind of this crazy process of like, okay, we're going to let them grow for a week. We'll let you know which ones died. And you're like, thanks. Oh, <laughs> and God. Then whichever ones like health grew in a healthy manner for five days, they freeze them and then you can transfer the embryo. And that's where we are right now. You know, and I know that you're keeping that part of your life private, which I think is, you know, on your timeline when you're ready to share. If there's an update, please, we're all, you know, waiting, fingers crossed. But really the purpose of of bringing you on here is to really talk about what it's like to struggle with fertility as any person, but specifically in, in your situation. Personally, as, as your friend also, it's been like, I don't know the best way to, to support you because it's also been going on for so long. Oftentimes it's like, maybe I shouldn't check on her. Maybe I should check on her. So in your opinion, for anybody listening that has a friend going through this, what is the best way to support somebody on their fertility journey? Yeah. So I think everyone handles it differently. And Amy is so like stiff upper lip, like she's always good to go. And I'm much more emotional. I think partially because it's happening in my body and the hormones and all that jazz, but I do really appreciate like a soft, gentle check-in. Like, how are you doing? Like, I don't want any direct questions because that gives me the opportunity to share like, oh, we're waiting to transfer an embryo or waiting, whatever. And I can share what I feel comfortable with, but I really do appreciate it. Like there are several people in my life who just send like a thinking of you, checking on you. Um, I think if you have a friend who lives close by, you're able to like meet up for lunch or do something to distract them. A lot of fertility treatments is like, hurry up and wait. So like get to the doctor's office. Okay, now you have a week wait. And so for me, it's been like any friends that like take me out to lunch, take me for a walk keep my mind busy. Um, I even have a friend who will be like, let's do a zoom lunch. And that way, like we don't live anywhere near each other, but I'm distracted for an hour. And I don't know if this is like what other people would feel. I don't need anyone to like give me a physical item or like make meals for me or things like that. That's been a question I've gotten a lot in my Q and A's or my DMS. Like, would you cook for someone? I'm like, no, because nine times out of 10, I'm not like debilitatingly sick. I'm just like, not myself. So it's more like emotional support than it is like physical support. And I like, I drove a friend to her egg retrieval. Like if you have capacity, usually the friend will request, but there are a few things in this process that are like, you can't drive yourself or take care of yourself during it. It's, it's so emotional. It's so physical. It's so hormonal. I mean, I, I've read, I watched your stories where you talked about it's like extended uh, amplified PMS. Like who needs that? <laughs> Yeah, no. And like, um, I always tell people like the normal estrogen range for a woman is between like 30 and 300 while you're just like living your life. And Mm -hmm. by the time I was on these drugs for the IVF for three days, my estrogen was at a thousand. So I was like already three times the normal women, woman after three days, it is roller coaster. (laughs) And if someone, if you have a friend going through it, honestly, like take every conversation with a grain of salt. Cause there's definitely things I've said I've that I regret in the last year. And they came out of like, not my true self your high estrogen levels. It was your high estrogen levels clawing at people. (laughs) And what are some of the least helpful or triggering things that people have said in attempts to be helpful? Just so we can all check ourselves when we're trying to be helpful of things not to say. I think it's similar to any kind of like loss or difficulty you have in your life, right? So like, well, at least anything that starts with well, at least just is not a good Mm. sentence to say. Like, well, at least you have eggs. Well, at least you can afford this. Well, at least blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I know a lot of friends who have gone through miscarriages, people say to them, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. Like never, ever say that to a woman. When you're in that moment, you don't 
you don't think about the fact that you can get pregnant again. You just think about that loss. Um, that one's a horrible one. Um, have you thought about adoption is one that sends my head spinning mostly because it like negates the fact that I am a smart person. Like my wife and I sat down and we were just like, let's try fertility treatments. No, we sat down and we were like, we cannot get pregnant as a couple. Like, what do we want to do? And adoption was obviously on that list. It's just kind of silly question. Most people who can't get pregnant have thought about adoption. What else? Just, you know, I've gotten a couple of comments from people about like, how do you feel about having a sperm donor in the age of 23 and me? And I'm like, well, how do you feel about the fact that some one of your male relatives could cheat on their wife and father a child anywhere in the world at any time. And then you figure it out via 23 and me. Like, I don't know. I can't live my life with the fear that like my, hopefully my children would be 16, 17, 18 years old when they had access to something like that. And if at that point in their lives, they felt so strongly compelled to find this quote unquote family out there, then that would have been something that like either I had, you know, discussed with them previously in life. Like, it's just not thing that a, newborn baby is going to come out of the womb being like, prick my finger. Let's do it. 23 and me. Like silly question. One that you wouldn't ask an adopted child, right? You wouldn't be like, how do you feel about 23 and me? Because when that adopted child is old enough to know what it is, they'll have the conversations with their parents and, you know, do what's best for their family. And a lot of these donors have closed, you know, donations. So like our donor has no interest in meeting his donor children. And we'll have to explain to our children, like, you have to respect that. That's how the world works. And our children will have strong male role models in their life. And hopefully will feel like they can go to them as a, a father figure. I'm not, I'm not naive to the fact that we're two women and there are certain perspectives of raising a male that we might need a male perspective to help us at. And we've already like tapped on our male friends and been like, you're coming over to our house the first time, like masturbation <laughs> topic or anything like that. Right. <laughs> totally. Well, I'm really excited for whatever's supposed to come for you guys and will come for you. And I'm really thankful that you've shared yourself so boldly online and also with that grain of, I'm a really sensitive person. You know, I think that's what makes your account really interesting. You set really strong boundaries. You speak your mind, but you're also like, I'm really soft on the inside and you don't hide that part. And that kind of just to me makes, you know, I see you as a full spectrum human being. Not to lighten this convo too much and take away from your truth, but I just have to ask you as an amazing food blogger, what is your favorite kitchen appliance? I have to say like, oh, I can't live without is the air fryer right now. And I know you're like so anti-air fryer. It's a tiny oven. I'm just going to use convection on my big oven. Great. You can go to my blog and try one of my air fryer recipes in your oven on convection and then try it in a traditional air fryer and you will see the light. Okay. But our air fryer is also like our toaster, but truly can't live without is like a good sharp knife. Like you, You just can't live without that. But like of frilly extras, the air fryer. And every single week I get a question in my Q and A, I need an honest opinion. Is the air fryer worth it? And I'm like, why are people so afraid to spend? Like you can get one for $70. Like there was one for $35 at Target. I mean, at Costco yesterday, I was going to take a picture of it and put it on my stories, but I guess it's because they're bulky. Is it because they're big and bulky that people are like really hesitant to make this investment? I guess so. But I would have had my air fryer. Like I lived in a teeny apartment when my oven was 14 inches wide and I would have had my air fryer over that. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like, it would be more useful. 
And I just want to say they're quick, they're easy to clean, and it's a great product. And everyone needs to stop with that like party line of, I've got my convection oven. I'm like, if you have to then rinse a pan, nobody wants to do that. Oh, and then there's people who's like, it's plastic. I don't cook my food in plastic. Mine is all stainless steel. So I don't know what you're Which one do you have? I have the Ninja. It flips up on the counter. I think mine's a, I think mine's a ninja too, but not also a toaster. So maybe you could link yours below in our show notes because you've sold me on yours. Okay. Okay. And then I also just want to ask you, because you are such a full spectrum person, if one day you decided you don't want to be food blogging or putting yourself on the internet, do you know what you would want to do? I don't know what I would want to do as a job, but I also am starting to transition my business a little bit so that like I could still have a a food recipe creation business without a uh, social media. I think like hmm. the thing I don't like about my job is social media. Everything else about my job I love. I love creating recipes. So I'm creating a more personal newsletter where it's behind a $5 paywall, $5 a month, you know, come if you want, come, you know, stay if you don't. But that's kind of where I'm moving a little bit because I just, I don't like social media. It scares me. And I also fear <laughs> that like, Instagram's deleting accounts left and right. And like, they could delete me tomorrow. So that's just something of my, my personal thing I'm doing. If I didn't do any of this, oh, it's so hard to say. I was a supply chain consultant before I was a food blogger. So I think it'd be pretty easy to get back into that space because it doesn't like change a ton. And I have the degree to back it up. And if I could work from home 24 seven and do that, I just didn't like the travel. I'd probably go back to that. I still have connections in that industry. So I love how you were able to take a moment to yourself and be like, okay, I actually do love my job, but I don't love the social media aspect. And you're figuring out a way to still do the parts that you love rather than just abandoning it all. Uh, I feel like Mm -hmm. all of us can kind of take a second to be like, which part of our jobs do we like? And how can we amplify that and lessen the parts that we don't like? And I think that's really cool that you're leaning into that and continuing to do things that are untraditional that feel good to you. So thank you for living your truthiest life, for sharing it with us. And we will stay posted on your life, food and fertility journey. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.